What's up, everybody? You're listening to your boy Esteban from your favorite band, DBW. We are on Boondoggle Radio, my man. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to this intro before the intro of our today's Boondoggle Radio show. Uh, as you know, we're a veteran-owned and operated podcast, and this has been an incredibly therapeutic journey for me as a veteran that struggles with PTSD and anxiety, just getting out and talking to people. But uh, it does cost us some money, so if you feel so obliged to donate to our GoFundMe, we have a GoFundMe under Today's Boondoggle. We also have a Venmo at Today's Boondoggle that you can donate to. Uh, our anchor sponsorship at anchor.fm forward slash today's boondoggle uh, any questions comments suggestions complaints you can email us at today's boondoggle at gmail.com and please follow us on our social media sites at uh, at today's boondoggle on instagram facebook twitter all your uh, social media platforms as well as our youtube channel our rumble channel and our BitChute channel please follow subscribe comment and download and please consider checking out our sponsors. If you uh, support our sponsor, Dream Nutrition, you can receive 10% off your order by using the promo code BOONDOG10 at checkout. So Dream Nutrition, they're a veteran-owned and operated company as well, so please support them and receive 10% off using the promo code BOONDOG10. Thanks for your time, and thanks for listening. The pinnacle of rock festivals in the United States. Sonic Temple Art and Music Festival returns to historic Crew Stadium. The biggest lineup ever to rock Columbus. Slipknot. Disturbed. Pantera. Limp Biscuit. Evanescence. Judas Priest. Stain. Rise Against. And the original Misfits, plus a day to remember. Falling in reverse, breaking Benjamin, 311, sleep just either in this moment. Fade, Cypress Hill, Sum 41, Carrie King, and Thrax. And that's just the beginning. Over 120 bands, four days, and for the first time ever, a fourth stage to give you more metal, more rock, and more mayhem. May 16th through the 19th at Historic Cruise Stadium in Columbus, Ohio. Tickets on sale today at SonicTempleFestival.com. Some people will go to any lengths to pop, my man. I mean, pop. Like, just this past year, I resorted to deadlifting my girl's Tesla so my chassis could outshine the competition. But what's more important is nutrition. And that just blows my mind. That's why I let TNT Health put together my workout and meal plan and everyone's seeing results now and that's why it makes my heart soar like a hawk to share with all of today's boondoggle fans that if you use promo code boondoggle you can receive 10 percent off your purchase at tnthealth.com so remember what the macho man says go to tnthealth.com 
Get some product. Use promo code Boondoggle and save. Especially if you want pythons the size that look like they come off of Skull Island. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now hang it up. Hang it up now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. going on everybody it's bill bailey with today's boondoggle and a real quick housekeeping note if you're watching us on uh youtube or BitChute or rumble or uh, odyssey please hit that follow and subscribe button if you're listening to us on spotify apple google uh whatever podcast platform you utilize please hit that follow and subscribe button so we can continue to bring you conversations like the one i'm bringing you today i'm speaking with uh uh, fellow Navy veteran, uh, Mr. Marco Cuevas. How you doing? Doing all right. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, yeah. I've, uh, you know, I've kind of, I, I believe we've crossed paths uh, in the past without even uh, realizing. I'm sure at some of these functions we were talking about before we went on the air. But uh, I know we're, uh, you know, Facebook friends and stuff, too. So I get to follow your adventures, which I'm uh, excited to get into, especially the, the, uh, the flying that you do. But uh, usually when I have somebody on for the first time, I like to get a quick background. So do you remember originally, what did you want to be when you grew up? Um, I didn't really have kind of a path. Um, didn't really. Yeah. I mean, architect was, a, was something that I was interested in for a while. I enjoyed building models. I built like, I'd get like the balsa wood and, would build like bridges or houses and stuff like that when I was a little kid. So I, I enjoyed designing and building things. Um, and then when high school came around and wasn't sure I was going to do, I ended up uh, moving in with my dad for my senior year. I actually graduated from a different high school than what I originally <laughs> attended. Uh, I actually left for boot camp. Um, six days. I graduated on my birthday on my 18th birthday, six days later, I left for boot camp. Um, I, I joined the military just because I didn't, I wasn't ready for college. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And because I was living with my, with my dad for my senior year, that was kind of like his thing. He's like, well, this is what I did. Uh, if you don't know what you're to do, let's at least explore this. So I did, I ended up, uh, becoming a, uh, an intelligence specialist. I was originally supposed to be a CT. Um, and then 
you know, whole, the whole MEPS thing. Oh yeah, but this job went away. So now you got to choose something else. So I ended up taking IS. Yeah. And, Did, uh, now was your dad uh, Navy as well? Is that why you chose the Navy or? Yeah, he was a, he was a grape on the USS Nimitz. Oh, so wow. he handled all the fuel for, for the planes. Yeah. Nice. And then, uh, so like, uh, the calling to serve kind of, you, you know, you kind of had that young. So it, yeah. And I wouldn't, it didn't start out as a thing to serve. It was a job after high school. Cause I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, but boot camp kind of changed that and really instilled what I was actually doing and, and why I was there. I mean, yeah, all the benefits are great, but, uh, it was, it was a cool job. Um, and I really, got into um the the serving side of it like why am i actually doing here what is the purpose of the military it's not just a job we're, we're here to defend our country so i got really into the service side of things which carries on throughout my life for sure yeah and then um uh where did you end up uh doing boot camp at so boot camp was great lakes uh so did did that there and then my service week was actually at the pt drill hall i didn't go to the chow hall which was really nice that was a nice it was a nice break for that week um and then from there i went to damn neck virginia for intel training oh nice nice <clears throat> and then uh during your time in what were what would you say is some of the oddest things that you experienced oh oddest yeah um odd i don't think anything really stood out as so i i was i joined june 2001 so i was in a school in virginia for september 11th um and i was originally at the time that happened i already had orders to uh jack molesworth which is in north of london in the uk and then september 11th happened uh and i my orders got changed i went to a newly created anti-terrorism uh task force cell at the um we called it the embassy but it wasn't it was across from the embassy in downtown london so i stayed in england i just went to a different location uh and it ended up turning out like i enjoyed it a lot more um but my entire time i did anti-terrorism counterintelligence uh, i did get my strike certification when i went to a squadron um and then i, th I think the oddest time uh, it was just really just all in general is that I spent more time supporting the Marines, the army and the national guard than I did supporting the Navy, uh, ended up with a deployment to Afghanistan. I was stationed with, uh, a, uh, national guard unit out of Georgia. And then when they left, my, uh, billet was rolled over into the national guard of South Carolina. Um, so it was just, I think the oddest thing is that I spent more time supporting the other services than I did my own. Yeah, it's a lot seemed to change, especially after 9-11, you know, it's like I had uh, uh, quite a few more years on you then because um, I, I uh, joined in 92, you know, so it's like I had a lot of peacetime, you know, and like a lot of right. yeah, all those extra tax dollars to go on, you know, the different ATs, the, the fun training and stuff like that. And then all of a sudden, you know, yeah, once once 9-11 uh, came and next thing you know we're 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 soldiers we're you know my most of my deployments after that were with you know doing army stuff more than navy stuff you know yeah i i remember um like one of the stories that kind of sticks out about my time when i was in london 
is I went TAD to Italy and uh, Vicenza, Italy. And I was supporting, I was like backup support for everything that was happening in Liberia. So this was the time, you remember the big blackout that happened here? Uh, yeah. That like took oh, out. East Coast like, or whatever. Yeah. 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 Uh, so I was in Italy when that was going on because we were supporting everything that was going on in Liberia. And the, the funniest story that I remember is, and this is a testament of like why you should not stop taking your malaria medication until you are absolutely certain that you're not going to get it. The USS LaSalle was on its way back from its deployment and then got retasked to go to Liberia. And all of the Marines on the ship ended up getting malaria because they stopped taking their meds on their way back home from their deployment, but then got retasked. And they didn't start taking them again. Oh, so they no. go so they go on shore in Liberia to help everything out. That's all the humanitarian stuff going on over there. And like, I want to say, I can't remember. I think it was like 80% of the ship got ended up getting malaria. It was crazy. Oh, man. <laughs> and then, uh, like, without breaking OPSEC, what was one of the worst places you'd say you served at? Worst. Um, wow. I, what, okay. So define worst, like worst is in command culture or worst is in job responsibility. Um, I mean, yeah, I guess, uh, I mean, it could be either or, I guess. I mean, it usually when I, when I ask, it's just like, you know, the place that you were at and just like, you know, the environment and stuff but i never thought of command culture before i because there's been a lot of places that were like could have been paradise but then when you're being micromanaged every day you know it kind of yeah sucks the life out of it yeah so i didn't even think of that's a new per way to look at that question going forward <laughs> well when when i think of worse like afghanistan wasn't wasn't horrible um the the unit that i was attached with i did um uh a lot of support for the coalition spec ops groups um so we did i i, I was a fobbit i went off a couple of times um a, so it wasn't horrible but i did support the right people so that when i did leave the base i was with the right people that if anything happened uh, like we, we were good um but uh in terms of like just command command culture i enjoyed being a part of, I was a part of an F-18 squadron out in California. Uh, and, th and that was, it was fun because I, in, I always had a draw to aviation. And that's actually when I started um, working on my private pilot license when I was out in uh, NAS Lemoore. Um, but that, as an intel specialist in a squadron, you don't really do work until you're on deployment. Yeah. So when we were home, I was bored out of my mind. I was handling security clearances. Uh, I was dealing with all the politics of, of the pilots and the department heads. And, and it just, it wasn't fun. And then my, the Intel officers I had, my first one was, uh, I, I don't even remember his name. Um, obviously not a, a good impression if I can't really remember him. And I could have probably only speak bad of him. The person that ended up replacing him, she was kind of cool. Um, but she was she was very, very new to the Navy by the time she got to us and I had been in for five years already. So I think she had only been in for two. So that was, that was a, a struggle as well. And I was in E5 at the time. Um, 
So just like dealing with all the stuff at home before deployment, that was kind of junk, uh, which is why I actually ended up getting my plane captain's qualification because I was so bored. I went out to the flight line and started working on jets. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, we got that in common. I mean, I, my first, uh, duty station was, uh, VF 84 Jolly Rogers and Oceana NAS Oceana F 14 squadron. And I was like non-rate. So it's like, I had to become a plane captain, but, uh, you know, I, I remember like my one buddy got into Intel and I, you know, uh, crossed over to Intel out of the line check and I, I should have followed him, but I ended up doing uh, yeoman instead, you know? Okay. Um, but uh, yeah, I remember like you were saying, like when we weren't deployed, he was, you know, bored out of his gourd. But yes, you know, we were, that's when the action happened. I mean, I did get the security clearance and all that stuff, but nothing, I'm sure, to what you guys dealt with. But then, uh, so then, what would you say is one of the your favorite places? Um, yeah. London, I can't can't beat London. When I when I look at back, I, my first duty station, eighteen years old, being stationed in London for two years. Uh, I lived in my own flat for uh, about half the time, and then moved into the barracks after that because they didn't have any they didn't have any room in the barracks. They because of September 11th, they created so many billets at the command that I went to that they just didn't have the space by the time I got there. So I got I got there. I ended up living in a flat on my own for my the half my first half of the time there uh so that was that was a lot of fun and then when i was when i was with my squadron out in california so i chose it was vfa 97 the warhawk <laughs> and i chose them because they deployed on the nimitz which was my dad's old ship so i'm like okay yeah. this will be fun well then i get there and like two months after i get there so the navy had an agreement with the marines that the Marines were supplying a squadron to go on deployments on carriers. Well, the Navy never reciprocated and sent a squadron to support the Marines. We were the first squadron to do that. So they canceled our order this to the Nimitz. And I ended up going to Iwakuni, Japan and spent, I did two deployments to Iwakuni, which Iwakuni was actually a pretty kick-ass uh, duty station. The, the base was awesome. You were an hour train ride from Hiroshima. So you got to go see the sites there. The, the Japanese countryside was gorgeous. The culture was amazing. I would say London was my absolute favorite place to be stationed full time. But for a, a just like kind of a short time visit deployment type thing, Iwakuni was amazing. Nice. Nice. And then uh, what it what was one of your like uh what pet peeve do you have with civilians since transitioning out of the military nobody stays in their lane <laughs> <laughs> everyone thinks that um and and it really is the the meme that i've seen floating around is like nobody stays in your lane and everyone gets offended when i like physically push you back to where you should be um it's i i think people are so I think part of this is, is what I got out of the military in, in terms of like, I, I went, I went because it was a job, but I left because I was proud of, I, I left as someone that was proud to serve um, yeah. and wanted to be part of a mission again. So I think that that's one of the things that lacks in the civilian world is people don't understand what, when they go to a job, they're going to a job 
solely as a self-serving thing. What can bring me money as opposed to being a part of something that is improving people's lives. Even as a, uh, somebody that, that builds, that has built my own businesses, I'm, I'm never building something to enrich myself. Yes, that's a byproduct and it's obviously a little self-serving. Yeah, I want to do this so that I can make an income, but I don't care what income I make. What I care about is as the product that I've created or the service that I'm doing, is it providing value to somebody and improving other people's lives? And I think that that way of thinking is very, very lost in the civilian world. Uh, my wife and I talk about it all the time. So I know before we started, uh, before we started the show, we were talking, my wife works at the VA. She's been there 21 years, uh, almost 21 years. And one of the biggest problems with the VA is that the majority of the employees there don't understand who their customer is. Their customer are the veterans and most people there are just very self-serving. They're this is a job to them. They're not. They don't understand that they're serving our nation's protectors. And yeah, it's, I it's, try and avoid going down to Wade Park for that very reason most yeah. of the time. And you know, it's like I Parma. I can. They seem a little bit more, you know, uh, about it. But it's at least it's like if they aren't, I didn't drive as far. <laughs> to, right <laughs> to be treated like crap you know <laughs> yeah parma's good lorraine's good because i i, I uh, that's my clinic uh i go to lorraine when i when i need to um but yeah i i would say uh the majority of the stories i hear the where the problems are at is because they don't realize who their customers are and they're, they're not there to serve they're there for a job and i think and that's rampant within uh civilian culture is that um people are in it for themselves obviously uh, but they don't, they don't think about what their place is within whatever organization that they have to be of. There's, there's no drive. There's no higher calling. There's no vision of what they're a part of. They're just going through the motions of the day stuff. And that drives me crazy. Oh yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. And then you kind of, uh, touched on it a little bit earlier, but what is something that, uh, you will always carry with you from your time of service? Oh, it's uh, the idea of service in just in general. Uh, like I said, when I joined, it was just a job. But what I came out of it is it was very, very hard for me. And I and all the different veteran influencers or people that I follow on Instagram and things. Uh, they're struggling with the same thing is that they they they're finding it hard to find things to be a part of again, where you find that camaraderie or uh, focus on a goal or, or a mission or uh, whatever the case may be. I think uh, my, one of my biggest struggles when I got out was finding that camaraderie. And that's how I ended up in skydiving is because that group is very, very similar where you yeah. could just be jumping with people all day and never know their names because mm -hmm. that's just the way the culture is. So, um, but that the idea of service, that's what ended up leading me into uh, the nonprofit world is because I can go to a for-profit job and make a ton of money with the degree that I have, but it's not fulfilling at all. And I think outside of a work-life balance, I, I think being part of something that's fulfilling and is meaningful is more important than the money that you bring in doing it. So that's how I ended up in the nonprofit world. Um, first starting out running a managing a federal grant down at a united way in florida 
and then transferring to United Way here, building uh, building programs and doing process efficiency, uh, essentially getting my my black, Six Sigma black belt, but for social services. Um, and then like even now, um, the company that I work for as a pilot, there's really not, I don't want to say that there's a, there's really not a mission. There's not, but I think what is, it, it just has to be with flying. Um, the, the way that he runs his business and the type of flying that we do stays very true to what flying was meant to be in the first place. Uh, so, and, and that's something that, that really appeals to me. And when I look at like some of the jobs that, uh, I'm eventually going to roll into, uh, I'm looking at like life care type stuff where you're doing life flights, uh, in fixed wing aircraft and, and flying people to different hospitals or different parts of the country for specialty treatments. There's still a mission in that that's yes, it's a for-profit company, but it's something that I can relate to and, and be a part of and actually make my own. So I'm not just taking, um, cause I don't want to fly the airlines. I want to fly business jets. So I'm not just taking some, uh, some, some random millionaires and billionaires and flying them around to wherever they want to go for either for the job or for pleasure. I actually want to be a part of something that, that, uh, is providing a better service. Yeah. And then, uh, what was, uh, what's one of the, the funniest stories you feel that you can share from your time of service? Oh, funny story. Um, I, I mean, as, as much as the, as much suffering as there was, I, I think the, that Liberia story is pretty, um, it's ironically <laughs> funny, uh, but, um, man, I, I can't think of anything like that stands out outside of that. Uh, I've had some really great times. I don't think I ever, I had some some bad times there's only about two or three bad times that stick out in my head um i obviously i had more good than bad i think the uh well that that goes against the question i i was gonna go negative there for a second but um i think just the 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 funny stories just the the day-to-day -day stuff that happened when i was in afghanistan um because i was it was the first time i was i mean it was stationed with a an army unit, a national guard unit. So, uh, it's completely different culture and different mentality, different way of thinking. Um, and, but you still had the, the, the jokes and the antics that go around, um, yeah. had a couple of contractors, civilian contractors that worked with us that were prior army and they ended up taking a contractor position. I just remember, uh, the, the base that I was at the command headquarters building on the base had, um, like a platform on top that you could go climb up and, and sit out and look out over the entire base and everything and, and beyond the borders. And we would go out there probably two, three nights a week, uh, and just smoke hookah. So we're <laughs> just those, those fun times. I mean, rippets, uh, obviously the, oh, yeah. the journey, <laughs> those, uh, staying up all night and just having, having the fun stories and, uh, just learning about each other and just building that, that bond that you can't seem to get anywhere else. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then, uh, what is one of your uh, greatest hopes for the country that you've been willing to give your life for? Oh, my God, that we get back to a, a, some sort of normalcy that we all agree on the f direction of our future. 
Uh, I think there's, there's so much polarization, obviously nobody, the two sides don't agree on the foundations of where we want to go. Um, uh, one, one is progressive and wants to ignore our past. And one is, I, the, obviously I feel is the correct way is the, you, you look at your past and use that as your foundation for growing forward. And nobody seems to remember that. I mean, we all used to agree on right and wrong. We, we don't even agree on right and wrong anymore. Uh, no. I think we need to get back to that. Just, just a basic agree on right and wrong first, and then take the next step forward. And it, it's, it is really sad to see. Um, I, I mean, I remember I was working, um, I was working a remote job for almost a year when, uh, when we pulled out of Afghanistan and I actually ended up almost losing my job because, uh, I know so many people that it affected just like it did with me. It, it was really disheartening to see after 20 years, we leave that place. And, and so many people on, on the left are like, yeah, no, it was good that we left. I'm like, okay, well then why didn't we leave Germany? We still have how many bases over there? So a whole different story, but I think we just need to get back to agreeing on what we want to be as a country. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> it's definitely, uh, <laughs> like bizarre world sometimes. And it just, uh, I look at like, you know, I had, I, I mean, I'm only 50, but it's like, sometimes I'm like, you know, I had a good run, you know, I don't know where things are headed, but whatever. I had, a, I had a good time. And then, and then I'm like, oh man, my kids, you know? <laughs> yeah. What are my kids going to be left with? So it's like, you still try and get out there and make, make some type of difference, you know, like having conversations like this, you know? Um, Cause that's the other thing too. I noticed like, you can't even, have conversations anymore they want to immediately just silence anything that makes them uncomfortable that they don't agree with so it's like how to, how can we compromise how do we come to you know any kind of uh agreement if we can't even talk you know well and you know what it's it's funny you say that because i it it's it's amazing what i've noticed about the military now too because my brother my, my brother's 10 years younger than me he is a pilot uh, in the Navy, he flies P8s. And, uh, so he, him being an officer, I was enlisted, uh, obviously. And just seeing the difference in him, uh, him and I actually don't see eye to eye on pretty much anything anymore. He, he used to, uh, he used to understand what it meant to be conservative and what it, what it meant to be tied to a mission and what, what we were serving, what we were defending. He understood what the constitution was, what the declaration was, what our bill of rights was. He understood all of that. And I don't know where he went wrong. I mean, I, I just saw him for Christmas. Uh, it was the first time in, I think it was two or three years. And there was just some things that I heard him say, I actually had to walk out of the room because I'm like, you know what? He's my brother. Uh, and I'm, I'm not gonna, I, I don't want to say anything. It's Christmas. To, to, you know? it, it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but some of this, some of the shit I heard come out of his mouth, I was like, I, I just wanted to bitch slap him. I, I was like, you, who, who are you? You are it's I, like and, college indoctrination, but you know, it, it, but it's infiltrated our, our, our military now, it's, you know, it's, it's gotten scary. bad. It's gotten absolutely horrible. I, th I think part of that too is though, um, he is actually not a religious person either. 
Uh, I think they, I think it, it goes hand in hand, regardless of how deep a religion you believe in. The fact that you believe in a religion tends to lean a little bit more on the conservative side of things. You, you wonder, because it, it starts to get into foundations of absolute morals instead of um, situational and uh, situational morals. Um, or so, like, you know, to have faith in something greater than yourself, because a lot of these people think that they're the, they're their own gods, you know? Oh, uh, a absolutely. And I would, I would say as much as it pains me to say it, I saw some of that in his comments and it was really disheartening. So, yeah. and, but to know that, so he's, I, I think he's in Oh four. Yeah. I want to say he's in Oh four. Um, Maybe he's in 03. I don't know. And and then it, it, you know, I mean, the scary thing is, it's like I think that's part of the 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 culture around him now too. You mm -hmm. know. So. Well, and then yeah, his, one of his first duty stations was a squadron out of Whidbey Island, Washington. So not only are you trying to be a conservative in one of the most liberal states in the area, <laughs> uh, and then surrounded by that, it it was just, I think that that made it a lot worse too is that when he wasn't at work he was surrounded by that community and it's just it's really it's really sad to see and doing everything i can to try and show him a little bit more of a pr proper direction without hurting the relationship because we do share a common bond. We both fly. I think that's one of the things that really upsets me about my relationship with him over the years is that, uh, or, or what it is now based on what it has been is that he, I, I know that he always looked up to me because he always did the things that I did. I started skydiving and he wanted to skydive. I got into flying. He wanted to fly. Uh, I was in the military. He joined the military. Like it drove my mom nuts that he always did what I did, but now he thinks a different way than I do. And yeah. it's really, really frustrating that we don't have the relationship that we once had. Yeah. I mean, it, it's like it, we're not all going to, you know, be fucking like robots or whatever, you know, and, and all like be in sync. But uh, if as long as we can at least talk about our differences, you know, it's the fact that when people are getting silenced and banned on social media and, 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 you know, be con being considered hate speech or whatever, because we offer a, a question that's not, you know, that doesn't line up with what, you know, it's like, you know, it's sad. I, I, I feel for you, but it's like, at least you, with your brother, hopefully you can at least have the conversation, you know, yeah. you guys can at least talk without shutting each other down, you know, or silencing yeah. the other one, you don't want him to be like a, you want him to find himself and be his own person. But at the same time, like, yeah, where, where, what concerns me the most, like you're saying is that that's the leadership. Now he's in a leadership position in our military and these young, you know, I mean, I remember how much the military influenced me when I joined, you know, like you said too, how much it changed you and gave you that sense of service. But we were young and impressionable and it was like a positive thing. Now, if you're young and impressionable and you're getting, you know, negative stuff fed into you, you know, will these, will these new soldiers uphold the constitution? You know, will they uh, remember their oath? Do they have the same oath there that do they honor it anymore? You know, I don't know. It's those I'm going off, but this is where my head's going with, <laughs> Where this oh, country no, I, is I, I can 
I completely agree. Uh, I'm actually, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm worried about what, how people view. I mean, if, if you don't love, if you don't love the country that you're a part of, how can you take an oath to defend it? And then if yeah. you take the oath to defend it, but don't believe in the oath that you're taking, what is that going to do? I mean, it's, it's already apparent what it's, what it's doing to our view on the world stage. We are a stock to the rest of the world. We are. Uh, there's, there's no doubt about that. And people are taking advantage of that weakness right now. Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. And then, uh, like one last question from my basic questions for, uh, veterans. And, then, um, we can continue this conversation, but, uh, what, what do you feel we can do to break the stigma of mental health and PTSD? Um, Well, I think that rolls into a little bit of what I do with the nonprofit, but I, I think the easiest way I can answer is when I, when I look at it from, if I'm talking to potential employers that are looking to hire veterans, because I know that that's uh, something that's always hard to talk about or hard to make that transition. And that we are all civilian, military, whatever, we all have degrees of issues. Um, when it comes to the mental health side of things, I would say pretty much everybody that joins the military will have some sort of mental health issue when they come out, whether it be because of a deployment, because of the things that they've seen, or just because it, I mean, it is very different to all be thinking the exact same thing in service of a mission. Um, and that messes with some people, depending on what their upbringing was. So it's very common. And I think one of the things that, that, that I get frustrated about is seeing that companies don't want to hire veterans because like, oh, they're going to be all messed up. Do you not realize the skills that a veteran is bringing to the table? Uh, we were so dedicated to whatever job we had and just that dedication alone can be taken into any job that we end up getting. So I think people don't realize how productive we are as society members, regardless of it, because we ourselves try to push through that. We recognize that we're one of the few groups of people that will recognize, Hey, we have a problem and the majority of us will do what we can to get beyond the problem and, and either fix it or at least suppress it enough to act whatever normal is. Um, and that people just need to understand that what they're getting from us is the best that we have. And I, I think we are looked down upon too much because we potentially have mental issues. Yeah. I mean, we were putting, I mean, like you were saying, a lot of people have, no matter what walk of life, you know, it's traumas experienced differently for other, you know, each person kind of experiences it different. We all have some form of trauma, but um, the fact that, you know, military's got the higher, you know, well, military, I'd say first responders and stuff. If you're in a position where you're likely to experience more, you know, but um what, uh, you know, um, but like you were saying too, it's just like, we also probably already have the, 
you know, we're taught a lot of the tools of coping, you know, working through and, and, and seeing, seeing the mission completed, seeing the job done, you know? So, um, why wouldn't they want to hire that person, you know? Right. And I think it's what, what's really interesting to, um, in terms of how we, how we treat, how I'm going to say the VA, but how veterans are treated and the services that they get. Um, I think there's obviously you're fighting big pharma on this one, but uh, oh, yeah. the, the, am the amount of drugs that we give our veterans is, is nauseating. It's, it's absolutely nauseating. So I'll give you an example. So I mentioned before that my, my wife works the VA. She's a, a pharmacy technician. It's been there for 20 years. And she regularly cannot, she'll get halfway through a month, three weeks into a month. And the manufacturers will stop sending particular medications because they've dispensed so much of it. So like they've hit a quota and the manufacturer won't send them anymore. That's how much we're prescribing. It's mm. disgusting. Um, and and she, there's a handful of drugs that she runs out of every month. Um, so I, I think there are better ways, uh, which, and, and whenever you're ready to roll into this, I think that rolls into the, the nonprofit really well. There are significantly better ways that not every veteran needs to have that amount of drugs. Yeah. Uh, there, there are other ways to do it, but like I said, you're, you're going up against big pharma. So it's, it's an uphill battle. Yeah. And my part of my like, personal journey and, and yeah, we can get into, uh, you know, we can definitely segue into your uh, nonprofit because like for me, like when I first came home, man, it was like, you know, going trick or treating or something at the VA, man, they just threw all kinds of, you know, different drugs at me. And, you know, it, it made so many of my problems worse. And um, it wasn't until, like, I started, like, doing my own healing outside the VA through veterans organizations, you know, uh, like, I'm sure yours is similar to that, that I started really experiencing true, like, you know, healing, uh, like, more holistic type uh, you know, healing, uh, I got weaned off a lot of the medications and I think the, v I mean, the VA started this whole health thing recently. So I think hopefully they're starting to finally head in a better direction. Uh, I mean, it can always improve. It's definitely come a long way from where it was, but, um, but yeah, the majority of my personal journey in healing after my deployments and retiring have been outside the VA through, you know, veteran organizations that have helped uh me tremendously you know and uh so yeah let's talk a little bit about what um you know what you yeah. guys do. so i mean that's the story that you just told me is what i hear the most um when i talk to veterans and the veterans that are doing well and aren't struggling anymore i ask them what helped them? And they're like, I got off all the drugs and I stopped going, <laughs> I stopped going to these clinical settings. I started hanging out with other veterans. I started hanging out, uh, even, even not just veterans, but groups that were dealing with similar struggles and they're finding different ways to handle it. So my 22 veterans, it, it, uh, the official name is JR, my 22 Inc. 
we go by uh, doing business as My 22 Veterans. Um, it focuses on connecting veterans to alternative therapies, non-clinical alternative therapies, uh, art, equestrian, aviation. My background in aviation, there's uh, I'm working on developing a program uh, to kind of use that. For me, um, I've I I, I don't want to say I'm an antisocial person, but I don't do well in groups. I I, I never have. Um, I was okay when I was in the military, but even getting out, I can be around a small group of people, but that's about it. When we start getting into large groups, I, I just couldn't do it. So for me, that's what flying, flying is my alternative therapy, man. It doesn't matter how stressed my life is. As soon as I get in a cockpit, I'm free. I, I get in that plane, I get up in the air, and it's just an amazing feeling. My mind just empties. I have no stresses. I get to look at the world. I mean, you've seen the pictures that I take. Um, it, when I was doing my flight training, I was able to, I was spending a lot of time high up in the air and getting those views. But now the flying that I do towing banners, all of my flying is at a thousand feet and I'm at like 35, 40 miles an hour. So I, I'm low to the ground. I see some awesome sights. It's just, it really, to me, I think that that's what flying was meant to be as an, as if you look at it as a, as a recreational type thing, or even as I'm getting a plane because I want to fly and get a hundred dollar <laughs> burger at an airport two hours away. Um, and that the low flying being close to the earth, but still up in the air that just the, I, I, I can't even explain it. I mean, it's just, it's just so freeing to be up there. So that's my alternative therapy and, and, and I developing something that, that will potentially give that opportunity to other people as well. But we've partnered with a couple of horse programs, um, the equine therapy, people that are much smarter than me and know a lot about horses, uh, horses terrify me. Uh, <laughs> like I can get up to them. I can get close to them, but it, just for a very quick interaction and then I'm, I'm done. I'm like, I, I can't do it. Um, but, that works for people. So what got me into like looking and partnering with them is I heard about, um, the, the Mustang heritage foundation out of Texas. Um, there's a guy here that had gone through their program and what they did is uh, it's a six week program. It's very intensive. Um, there was a group of like, I want to say seven or eight of them. There was one guy that was on 16 different medications when he started the program, six weeks later, he was down to two. Wow. In six weeks, he got off of that many medications because his connection with the horse helped so much. And what's interesting about that program is that if when you go through it, I don't I don't know the status of that individual program in Texas anymore. I know that the Heritage Foundation still exists, but they've been running into some uh, some fiscal issues because government funding had gone away. Um, but if you had gone through that program at the end of the six weeks, if you were in a financial position to do so, they would give you the horse. So that you can mm -hmm. take the horse with you and continue your own personal therapy with the horse. It was cr crazy. So there's a guy here in Ohio that's uh, down by over south of Youngstown that's creating a similar thing where you get that horse time. And then we've partnered with a program down in Medina, uh, Forever Amber Acres. They actually yeah, just announced I've, that. I've worked with them. Yeah. Yeah. So we're partnered with them. Uh, we've we've sent uh, for we've sent one guy through, um, and then. I, right now I'm in talks with a couple of different artists, uh, art teachers to, uh, do an art program, art therapy program. So, um, and then there's one person that we're putting through a music program right now too. So it's just all of the things that take, uh, that don't focus on the drugs 
and don't focus on a clinical aspect. Yeah. Now, my background in the nonprofit world, what is the purpose of a nonprofit? And I think that a lot of people get this wrong in the nonprofit world. There was like, oh, we always want to increase the amount of people that we're helping. No, I think the purpose of the nonprofit is to put yourself out of business. Change the change the environment so much that you don't need to exist. So the purpose of our nonprofit is to show how all of these alternative therapies actually work and to get legislation changed so that way there's more of a focus on it through the VA so that we don't have to do this work anymore so that the VA oh, yeah. can pick that up and say, okay, we're instead of prescribing what we do, we're going to start partnering with these organizations that do these therapies and take the clinical aspect out of it. However, and when we say take the clinical aspect out is that it, it, it shouldn't feel clinical. You shouldn't walk into an office that's uh, all these artificial lights and you're in this group setting or even with just an individual doctor. There still needs to be clinical data pulled out of it because the data is what's needed to make the compelling argument for the legislative change. So in all of these programs that we're partnering with or the ones that I'm designing, um, it's my, my specialty in the nonprofit world was program design and data management. So how do we most efficiently design a program to get the most beneficial data in the least, the least amount of it as possible to get the information to make the compelling argument? So all of these will have different small assessments. I mean, and when we say small, it's not like 200 and some questions. We're talking like six to 10 questions. But the thing is, is you have to look at them over time. So you have to ask the same six to 10 questions over time so you can see a change in the answers based on whatever therapy happens to be used because you need to see that change in the answers to show the compelling reason for an, uh, an argument for legislative change. Yeah. So that's kind of our big focus. Gotcha. And then, but also like uh, you're networking veterans with programs that could benefit them. Correct. And then we do the basic need support too. So we'll pay a bill if we need to we'll, um, help them get food on the table. So, so we do the emergency financial stuff, the emergency band-aids. We do that as well. And that's usually our foot in the door with a veteran to say, okay, well, what's the root cause of the problem? What do we yeah. really need to look at? Can we, can you benefit from one of the programs that we could potentially partner you up with? Um, and then providing the financial support to those organizations. If we make the referral, I don't want to just make a referral to an organization and say, okay, you got to deal with this person. Now I want to make the referral to the organization and then provide the financial backing for the person that I just sent you. So that's yeah. one of the things that, that we focus on. But then we also, like I said, we, we do that emergency financial assistance for the veterans. So now, uh, an example would be the person that we had going to the, the horse program. That was a 45 minute drive. They didn't have a car. So we were actually paying somebody to make, to, to drive them. And then we were taking care of that person's, some of, uh, that person's, uh, uh, basic need stuff at home, like getting them food on the table instead of paying an electric bill or a heating bill, whatever the case may be while they were going through that program. So that way they the mere act of going through the program wasn't more of a burden at home as well. And then you said that you uh, work with Jeff Ritchie on, on this. Uh, when, how did, when did you guys come together and, and put this together? 
Okay, so I met him uh, back in 2015 when I joined the VFW, and um, we had worked together. I was a, a junior vice commander at, at, at our post, and uh, we had worked together on doing some things. And then we got to a point where we were trying to do things for veterans, and we just kept hitting roadblock after roadblock and red tape and all the stuff because these are our, I, as much as I love these organizations, they are archaic organizations with not just the bylaws. I don't think the bylaws were the hindrance. I think the interpretation in the good old boy club feel and, and just the, Oh, we don't want to do that. So I, all of this stuff that we were trying to do to help veterans and we couldn't, we finally just got fed up and he approached me. Uh, so this was in 20 or uh, end of 20, early 21. Uh, he approached me and said he knew my background in the nonprofit world, working, uh, working for United Ways and, and just really understanding how to run a nonprofit. And he said, hey, this is the idea I have. Do you want to do you want to do this? I won't do this without you. And I'm like, OK, well, give me some time to think about it. Uh, so now, essentially, I I came on um, as I, I was never a board member um, because the idea was that I was going to be the executive director. So now I'm functioning as the executive director as a key employee. Uh, and then they still have all of their board members because I can run the day to day. I know how to do the financing for it. I know how to do the, the business management. My degree is in business management. So I know how to do all of this stuff to make sure that we're meeting all the compliance issues and making sure the funds are being used the right way, filing our 990s, which I'm working on our 990 for last year right now. Um, so it was really, he was, he, we were just fed up with jumping through that red tape and he approached me and said, yeah, let's, let's do this. And, and really we, his thing was, he just wanted to get to the veterans that were being neglected at these individual posts. He has an amazing ability to find veterans in need. And we were kind of building off of that. But one of the things that was important to me was we can't just be like every other nonprofit out there that helps these emergency situations. So United Way, Catholic Charities, Salvation Army, they all have these emergency financial programs. I didn't want to just be another one of those specifically focused on veterans because then we get lost in the crowd. We needed something to stand out. And it was through a lot of research. I probably spent six months really surveying the landscape on where the needs were. And that's when we came across like all, all of these alternative therapies that are working, but don't have the, the reach, the scope, the ability to grow as their own organizations. They're, they're just focused on their, their one little area. So we're trying to be kind of like a marketing arm for these organizations to really get this, uh, the, the word out about all of the different options available for potential alternative therapies. And the ones that we're looking at, we're looking at things that already have a track record of being successful. And um, so like with, specifically with the one that I'm working on built doing something that's uh, more aviation focused. There's actually a nonprofit down in Florida that teaches veterans. It's run by a hundred percent disabled veteran. He teaches other disabled veterans to fly powered paragliders. I want to do something similar here. So, oh, nice. but these, these are people that have track records. We're not just, unless there's some sort of idea that we can, uh, run and try with, and we, we can't do that until we have the funds to be able to, but we're, we're not approaching something unless there's some sort of track record of it being successful in the first place. Nice. 
Yeah, I'll, I'm, I'm, we'll definitely have to talk more uh, after this uh, um, interview because I, uh, you know, bringing to bringing back something that I had been like working on in the past and kind of got distracted from um, taking a lot of the different modalities that have helped me along my journey, you know, my healing journey outside the VA. Like, you know, there's places that weren't always, you know, veterans either. Like I've done like float tanks and, you know, um, uh, cryo and stuff like that, you know, cause a lot of us deal with chronic pain and, um, yeah, just all kinds of like things that have helped me along the way. It's like this podcast for me is like therapy, part of my healing and therapeutic because like, you know, I suffer from bad social anxiety, you know, it's like diagnosed with PTSD and, um, you know, I'm 14 years sober. I had to learn how to communicate and, you know, like, like you, I don't like large groups, uh, either, but as you know, so that's why I would like numb out whenever I'd go. Cause I'm a big music fan. I'd like to go to music festivals and concerts. So it was like really tough. And now doing this uh, podcast and some of the other therapies I've done, I'm able to start hitting up vet ticks and going to shows again and enjoy right. You know, well, I think I, cause I, think I see so. a lot of your pictures. I think um, just as an outsider seeing it, you telling me that I think one of the things that probably helps you cope is the fact that pretty much all the ones that you go to, you're t you take your daughters with you. Yeah. Yeah. They've, just uh, the fact that you're, it's a, the family thing. I think that is, is probably a huge part of being able to, 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 to cope with larger groups. Yeah. We're definitely a big musical family and uh, yeah. It, well, yeah. And it's also like, you know, before it'd be like when I was in involved in it and I was drinking and there was always like some sort of self selfish, self-centered, you know, activity or whatever that or motivation that kept me going there. And now it's like, sober it's like well i did create all these friendships and networking and bonds why not enjoy that with my with my kids now and it's you know memories that they'll always uh have and stuff too so yeah you know that's definitely a big huge part of it but there's a lot of music that i like that they don't you know and i still want to go hit some of the shows and it makes it easier the more i've been able to you know work through my stuff and and be involved with that um I wanted to get touch back on, on, uh, your flying too. Like, um, like what, uh, I mean, you, you said you always kind of, uh, you got in you, something drew you to skydiving and then you've always kind of wanted to fly. And then, um, what was the, uh, that process like when you decided, you know, you so to yeah. Um, when I was stationed out in California, this was 2004, 2005, they had a, uh, a flying club on the base. So I started working on getting my private license. And uh, I mean, it's expensive, uh, even back then. I mean, so we're now 20 years. Uh, it was even expensive back then to try and get that flying time. I think it was paying $80 an hour for uh, the, the plane and $30 an hour for the instructor. So $110 an hour. And the FAA minimums are 40 hours, obviously with all the, the, the things that you have to, to learn during that 40 hours. So it was kind of slow going at first. And then when I left active duty, the first time I was, uh, I stayed out in California and I went to a flying school at the Fresno airport and 
there's three stages to the, the school that I was in because there's two different ways that you can learn. You can learn just kind of willy nilly. They call it part 61. You get an instructor and they have a list of things that they have to teach you. It doesn't matter what order it is. And then you go to a part 141 school and they there it's a structured syllabus. You do this on this flight. You do this on this next flight. And th those flights are it's broken up into three phases. Well, I made it through. I had enough money and I, I made it through phase one. Uh, I made the phase one check. I was working on phase two. I was never able to finish. So then I moved out. I, I moved back home to Ohio and it just kind of fell by the wayside. It was just too expensive. And over, over time, I just kind of like forgot about it. Um, when I got into the skydiving, it was, I, I just enjoyed being in the air. And what kept me skydiving was the fact that I had just left active duty not too long. Um, and actually my first skydive was right before my Afghanistan deployment. Cause I was like, you know what? I'm going to Afghanistan. I don't know how I'm coming home. So I've never done this before. I'm going to go jump. So I, I did two jumps in one day cause I loved it so much. I, I did the second jump. Um, and then are you, we, we get our, our two week vacation from deployment. I actually went to um, San Diego for my two weeks uh, cause I had some friends that lived there. And so I had a free place to stay and I went and I did 45 jumps in six days and got my A and B license. Um, as a skydiver bought my first rig cause I had stupid money from being on deployment. Um, and I just stayed in it when I got back from deployment because it kept me in the air and I already had all my gear. I had my license. It kept me in the air. Um, but I always enjoyed being in the plane. I was like, I, I still, I just can't afford it. So it never crossed my mind that I could do it. And then, uh, with my involvement with the VFW, um, as a quartermaster, I was getting all the mail and I got something in the mail one day. This was 2018. Got something in the mail. Uh, a flight school here in Akron was taking the GI bill. So that kind of planted a seed and I didn't really think much mm. of it. And when it, I, this was still while I was working at United Way as well. And I had a picture on my desk and it was one of the heritage flights, the F4 Corsair and the F18. The F uh, F4 Corsair, the FG1D, um, the gull plane with the, the, the wings that come down and then go back out. Yeah. That World War II plane, that is my favorite plane. That is my dream plane to fly. I will at some point be in a Corsair. I have no idea when, but I will fly a Corsair. Um, but I had that picture on my desk and I was like, I, at some point I want to fly a Corsair and I would love to do a heritage flight with an F-18 or an F-15 or something. Just get me up flying in formation with a military jet. And that was just staring at me in the face. And then finally there was something that flight school came across my desk again, for some reason. So I started looking into it because I still had a year left on my GI bill. I was like, okay, how much of this can I actually use towards getting my commercial license? I've got 40 some hours in a plane right now. Um, what can I do? How can I get there the fastest? And did a little bit of research and I was like, okay, talked with my wife and set everything down. Essentially it was an associate's program. So I ended up with an associate's degree in aeronautical science. Um, but we made the decision, okay, I'm going to do this. And I was going to start cutting my hours back at United way and eventually just leave. And I worked with my boss and they were very cool about it, helping me transition so that I could still have some money until I got really into flying. Cause I had to get some of the classes out of the way first. Um, and I was just banking everything I could. So that way, cause I knew my income was going to stop 
we were going to go down to a one, one income household. And then even though I had the, the, uh, housing money from the GI bill, I only had 12 months and three days of benefit. So I could only use it while I was in school. Well, I took that 12 months and three days and I split it over three academic years and I pulled $76,000 out of that last year of support. And it paid for my private, my instrument, my commercial single and my commercial multi-engine. I didn't get my CFI. I don't want to be an instructor. Um, and then I sat on my license for a year because as a low time, this is one of the problems with the aviation industry and kind of why there's a pilot shortage is the training. You have to get to 1500 hours. If you're going to go fly at the airlines, your minimum that you have to get to is 1500 hours. However, you get your commercial at like 250. So there's a, there's a 700 and or, uh, yeah, 750, 250, 1000, 1250 hour gap that you have to fill to become a, to, to be working as a commercial pilot at the airlines. Mm. And the, one of the things that people do is they become an instructor. I had no desire to become an instructor. So I had to find some of these other jobs that exist. Um, and it was hard to find. I'm geographically limited because of my wife's job. We're not moving. Um, so I, I was really limited in like what I could do. So I was looking at like survey flying, there's planes that just they'll fly pipelines. They do pipeline or, or um, um, power line inspections, or they'll do survey flights. They fly a camera and they're taking pictures of everything. Um, so I was looking into that and then I just got so frustrated with it. I was like, okay, I, it kind of went on the wayside and I ended up working for a company doing uh, online sales for uh, a product in the nonprofit world. It was a product that I had used. I knew very well. Um, and then one day I'm searching through Facebook. I wasn't even looking and I saw something, Hey, banner tow pilots needed. So I called the company. This is, they're out of Toledo. It's called air America. And, um, I give them a call and they're like, yeah, send your resume and a, a, a scan of the last page of your logbook." So I was like, okay, sent that. I get a phone call later that day. He schedules me for the interview the next day. So I drive over to Toledo I do my, my verbal interview with him and he's like, okay, we're going to weather sucks today. So come back on this day and we'll actually go up and do a flight. So I did a flight first time I'm in a plane in 18 months is with it, <laughs> with my potential future boss doing an interview. So I'm like trying to learn how to fly again after being out of the plane for 18 months while I'm interviewing. And, um, so he ends up hiring me and this was actually, uh, what's today is Tuesday. Saturday was my one year. Um, wow. because I was flying up in uh, Houghton Lake, Michigan. And last year, that same weekend, I was up there learning how to put the banners together on the ground and then take them apart, roll them up and everything. So I, I wasn't flying then I was still just, I'm literally just learning how to handle all the banner stuff. And then the weather just sucked. It went, probably like two and a half months before I could actually even start training. We started like at the end of March, uh, middle of March, end of March. And by April, uh, I was finally cleared to fly on my own towing banners because there's a training process. That you have to learn on like, how are you picking up the banner? How are you dropping it? And things you got to learn, figure out when you're towing banners. So now, I mean, my, my first, year i spent most of it flying in a cessna 150 but this thing was souped up i used to have a mazda miata it would be like taking the miata and putting that 
little taking the four banger engine out of it and putting a V8 in it. That's this how thing this thing was souped up. I 180 horsepowers in a little tiny airframe with um, wingtip extensions, leading edge extensions, vortice gen like this thing flew and it was a lot of fun. Um, I remember flying a 150 during training and it was like, my car has more power than this thing. But then I got in this, I, I would fly this 150 anywhere. And then towards the end of the year, he, my boss came. So it was around September. My boss asked me what my plans were for, for this upcoming season, because I still need to get hours. I'm at like 900 hours now. Um, and I told him, I'm like, yeah, I don't mind sticking around. Cause I don't, I'm, I'm limited on what I can do. So he's like, well, okay, we'll transition you over to the tail dragger. So now I fly a super cub that transition was scary. Cause I've never flown a tail dragger before. The physics are different when it, when it comes to takeoff and landing, think of a dart. When you throw a dart, the weight wants to be in front. Well, yeah. in on a tail dragger, the weight is behind the main landing gear. So when you go to touch down, you have to be on it to keep that tail behind you. Otherwise it wants to whip around. Mm. So it, I was like terrified of flying this thing. Um, and I probably flew. Oh, about 20 hours before he signed me off to go fly on my own in this thing. And in that 20 hours, I probably had 150, 200 landings, takeoffs and landings in this thing. And I, I felt pretty confident. So first flight he sends me on away from the airport, I'm loaded up with a ton of weight. I've got a passenger with me and I go to land. It's at, it's at night. None of my flying in this thing has been at night. So now my depth perception is off trying to land this thing. Uh, so it was like everything went against me on this first flight away from our home airport. And I ground looped the plane. <laughs> no no yeah so the one thing i had been terrified of doing and really trying not to do happens on my first flight away from the airport i was like you've got to be kidding me so and and it what sucked even worse is that the person that was flying with me was one of the workers uh um she is is related to one of our uh, uh ground crew guys her first time in a plane Oh no! <laughs> so, <laughs> so what had happened? I came in a land, and I and I just I bounced, and when it came back down the second time, I had side loaded, so it was already it was already going off the runway. So I was able to keep it straight going off the runway, but as soon as I got into the grass, the tail whipped around. Thankfully, like normally, that's a very violent experience, and the tail dip or uh, like the wing tip will dip, and you'll end up like tearing up the wing and just really messing up the plane. Thankfully, I was slow enough that by the time it whipped around, uh, it didn't have the, the momentum and the energy to dip the to dip the wing. So nothing happened to the plane. I just terrified the crap out of myself and the person that had never been in a plane before. <laughs> so um, but from what I understand, she's been in a plane since and uh, she's OK with it now. Um, <laughs> Good. So but yeah, I, I just really, really uh, love the flying that I'm doing. Uh, so I've been everywhere. I spent uh, some time up in Northern Wisconsin. I go up to Michigan all the time. I've been over to Chicago. I've been down to Atlanta, North Carolina. So he covers a very large area. And um, we, we just, I get a text message the day before I got to fly. He knows that I usually fly Thursday through Sunday. I'll get a text message. I drive over there. I load up the plane. I fly to wherever I got to go. I set up the banners tow them for they're usually three or four hour tows 
land, pack everything up and fly back to Toledo. Sometimes we'll overnight. Like I spent um, like the long weekends, Memorial weekend, uh, 4th of July and Labor Day weekend that I all spent away from Ohio, like, and stayed overnight somewhere. Um, but it, it's just, it's just fun. I've gotten to see a very large amount of the U S and I, I tow banners. And what I really enjoy about it is that, yeah, I'm up there doing advertising and I don't care what I'm towing. If it's controversial or not, I don't, I don't care. I'm getting paid to fly. I'm getting paid to do what I love doing and what provides me some, some mental relief. And, um, one of the things why I want to get into flying these vintage warbirds is because the thing, what's important to me is I want to inspire other kids to fly. And even though I'm towing an advertising banner, I'm hoping that there's a kid up there looking at, Hey, I want to do that. Um, and at some point when I'm flying a, a vintage warbird that I'm, I'm going to either an air show or just a little small gathering. And there are kids there who say, I want to do that. Nice. Nice. Well, Hey, Marco, we've been going for like, uh, over an hour now. Uh, I want to get ready and wrap up here, but, uh, what, what, um, what would you say some uh, are some goals you have going forward? Um, my my biggest goal right now, obviously, I'm, I'm the reason I one of the reasons that I got into uh, flying was because obviously it's going to provide a better financial life for our family. Um, I love I mean, the house that we're in right now is great, but I want land. I want to get out of the suburbs. Uh, yeah. We we want to be a little bit more isolated. <laughs> um, but I really just I the aviation world is a very different lifestyle, even just general aviation for the people that own their own small little planes and they, they, they just go out and tool around and fly and whatever. I want that lifestyle for my family. Um, I want to be able to take my wife and say, okay, we're going to go. I don't want to deal with TSA. I just want to say, hop in a plane. I'm going to fly three hours. We're going to be in North Carolina. We want to go to a place. She, she reads a lot of books. Uh, what is it? Nicholas Sparks. She wants to go to the place, the settings in all of these books down in North Carolina. I want to be able to take her there. Um, nice. so it's just a different type of lifestyle that I want for my family. So that's how, one of the things, one of the reasons why I got into flying. Um, but I, I, something with aviation, whether I'm running my own airport or, um, running my own business in aviation, or even if I'm just flying or I'm doing something else that provides me the money to fly, I, as long as I can stay in the air and I can provide this lifestyle for my family, that's my goal. Nice. And then uh, I want to ask you a couple of questions I normally ask guests uh, before we get ready to wrap up. But what class do you feel should be mandatory before graduating high school today? <laughs> they they were slow to get on the bandwagon, but now that they're starting to, um, uh, there are two that I say. A, a personal finance budgeting class. But I think what they're teaching is all wrong because I do personal budgeting for people. And I, th I think people think about it the wrong way. Stop worrying about your credit score and start worrying about your net worth. Those are two very different numbers. And if you worry about net worth more than you worry about your credit score, you won't ever have to worry about your credit score again anyway. Um, so financial, good financial things. But then also um, I... I <laughs> We just need to teach the constitution, an entire class dedicated to our founding documents and why they exist and what the roles of each individual level of government is. 
the fact that the states created the federal government, not the other way around. The fact that the people in power are the people, not the people we elect. Like we have the power as citizens. And I think that that needs to be taught. So something on our founding documents and personal finances. Yeah, definitely agree. And then uh, who are three people who've inspired you and you can credit for making you the person you are today? Uh, hands down, the first one I can say is uh, my high school choir director. Um, really awesome guy. So if there are anybody here uh, in the, the Northeast Ohio area, I went to Highland uh, down in Medina County and uh, Christopher Ilg is uh, is his name. Now, I haven't spoken to him in many, many years, but I just remember he was a, a very guiding force when I was in middle school and high school because I, I I came from a divorced family. I had a stepdad. I, so my number two person is my stepdad. Um, and the reason why is because he loved me when he didn't have to. And he provided an amazing example for the fact that I now have a stepson. Um, so, I, and, and I know the value of having both dads in your life. I had my dad, I had my stepdad, my stepson has me and his dad. And that just, it, uh, my stepdad did a lot of things that he didn't have to do. Um, so yeah, my choir director, my stepdad, I don't know who a third person would be. Um, I don't have a third one. I think those at the moment, just those two, I think are the biggest forces for sure. Gotcha. And then, um, I like asking this question. It definitely takes you back, but, uh, uh, favorite toy as a child? Oh, um, I had, so it was like one of the slot car things, but it was a train. Um, and it went really fast, had loops and stuff. Uh, I can't remember the name of it, but it, it just, it, and you raced, obviously raced each other. It wasn't just a single track. Um, the slot car stuff and then model trains like the HO scale and then got into N scale. Those because it was, it was something having to do with trains. I was always drawn to that. Nice. And then uh, any message you have for our military members currently serving overseas? Currently serving overseas. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think this is an unpopular opinion. Um, your leadership doesn't care about you. The... <laughs> The only thing that matters is that you are there for your brothers and sisters that are next to you serving alongside you. And when you get home, you understand what you were. Hold on to the fact that you actually are serving in the United States military, that there's a reason that we existed in the first place. There's a reason this country exists and you need to hold on to that foundation and understand why we are the best country in the world. Particularly if you've been to all of these other countries, you will see that these countries do not have the freedom that we enjoy. And the only reason that we enjoy it is because of our founding documents and the people that risk their lives to give us the, the country that we have today. Do not lose sight of that. Um, and help be that force for change when you get home. And understand that if you are having issues, that there are ways to cope with it. And it doesn't always involve drugs. 
Yeah, definitely. And then um, for uh, anybody that's, uh, you know, any veterans or any uh, veteran family members that feel that uh, they're looking for some kind of help uh, and we just want to learn more about my 22 uh, vets, where would you send them? Um, they can just do my22veterans.org or they can search us on um, Facebook. And uh, we do have a couple different links on there for if you, you can email, um, I want to say it's info at my22veterans.org that will get you to me. Um, but there's a form on our website too. You can request assistance if needed. Um, we've been in, we've been in organization since uh, 2021 and it was only like within the last six to eight months that we've really started getting some traction in terms of the, the people that we're helping. Now we're in a bit of a financial crunch at the moment. I'm kind of being really, uh, um, conservative on what we spend money on just because we we've lost some of our funding at the moment. Um, so we're there, we'll do what we can. We have some very dedicated people that will help connect the dots with whatever need be, whether it be myself or uh, one of our case managers. Nice. All right. Well, uh, Marco, thank you so much for, uh, you know, hitting me up and, and, uh, being willing to be on here. It's funny. Cause it's like, I got like the rest of this week, I got like, uh, musicians and, and, you know, interview set to, to take me into the next few months, you know, on the queue, but it's like trying to find our fellow veterans that want to talk about themselves. They always feel like they don't have anything to share, you know? And it's just like, no, man, you got, I think your story is more important than some half the rock stars I talk to, you know? So. <laughs> no, I appreciate you having me on. I'm happy to come back any more time too, is because when we talked about the, uh, the financial planning and the budgeting stuff, um, I, th I think there's a lot more that could be said about that. Obviously I didn't, I didn't really talk about it at all. Um, but I I'd be happy to kind of go into that world as well. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'll definitely be talking to you about more of that, you know, probably off offline myself. It's like, I follow a lot of the, like the Dave Ramsey approach, um, for, uh, myself personally, but it's like, you know, I got young, young, uh, women daughters now, you know, and I'm trying not to let them get caught up in that, you know, oh, you know, get a credit card at your favorite department store trap and all that stuff, you know? Yeah. And like you said, I liked what you said about the credit score, focusing more on your net worth than the credit score thing so uh yeah i don't even know what my credit score is <laughs> i don't even care <laughs> i'll definitely be uh be be uh keeping in touch with you so thanks thanks again for your time now before i let you go i got one last favorite ask usually when i have veterans on i have them do a promo id for the show but i have them introduce themselves at like the last uh rank they held in in the military so if uh you wouldn't mind doing that uh introduce yourself at that and uh you're listening to today's boondoggle oh sure thing um okay so uh i'm is1 marco cuevas aw and you're listening to today's boondoggle with uh bill and marco awesome marco thanks a lot man really appreciate your time yeah not a problem thanks for having me on hello and thanks for listening to today's boondoggle and now for your listening pleasure florence whitingale presents his latest epoch
kick down your door. Gates is coming for you. Where the vaccines are hers and hers and his free microchips too. You can't walk out your door. Or you'll catch Chinese Here at today's Boondoggle. And the name is Dream Nutrition. So if you're looking to empower your human vitality, well, then you come to the right place. With over 12 years of combined experience in cannabinoids and terpene products, Dream Nutrition products include CBD oils, patches, proteins, and so much more. The endocannabinoid system is believed to have involvement in regulating physiological and cognitive processes, including the immune system, appetite, pain sensation, mood, memory, and in mediating the pharmacological effects of cannabis. Support this veteran-owned and operated company today, and today's Boondoggle fans will receive 10% off their orders when using the promo code BOONDOG10 at checkout. That's B-O-O-N-D-O-G-10 at checkout. So go to the link. That's dreamnutrition.com forward slash discount forward slash BOONDOG10. And remember, dream is not spelled like dream daddy. It's spelled D-R-E-E-M. And start saving today because you deserve to feel your best. And you know that's right. So tell them Dream Daddy and your friends from today's Boondog sent you. Thank you for listening once again to today's Boondoggle radio show. Please be sure to check out our website, DomainCLE.com or Boondoggle.com for more shows and check out our archives. Follow us on social media at Today's Boondoggle on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter for more information about this podcast. And please support us on www.anchor.fm forward slash Today's Boondoggle as well as on our GoFundMe and Venmo. 
Be sure to subscribe, comment, download, and listen to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spreaker, and all the other podcast platforms out there. Please email us with any questions, suggestions, and comments via todaysboondoggle at gmail.com. Leave us some five-star reviews and help spread the word. Thanks again for listening. Thank you for tuning into this week's Today's Boondoggle. Domain Cleveland Entertainment is a veteran-owned and operated cornucopia of nonsensical shenanigans. You can find interesting interviews, music news and information, and just about everything else in between. Thank you again for supporting, sharing, and tuning into Today's Boondoggle. Today's Boondoggle.